0: Love it or hate it, the exclamation mark has been a character in our writing for centuries. And few characters elicit such strong emotions. Simple and explicit, dramatic and infuriating. Every use tells the reader, here be feelings. But whether you think it's a fun way to sign off work emails, or you consider it best left in children's stories, the fact remains... This fascinating piece of punctuation has made a mark on just about every sphere of human activity. This was actually the description of my book from the jacket cover of the hard copy. My book, which came out yesterday, the 3rd of November, And it's called An Admirable Point, A Brief History of the Exclamation Mark, Exclamation Mark. It's been quite quiet on my podcast because I spend uh, the many months (laughs) between the last recording and now on writing the book, on editing the book, which is a whole different experience after writing it and on working on my website. So if you have a moment, if you're interested, um, go to my blog on my website where I publish thoughts, um, ideas, curious uh, occurrences around dots and dashes and commas and colons in literature and culture and politics and just our daily life um, around once or twice a week. So if you have a moment to have a look at my blog as well. But now back to this book. So this is a biography, a whimsical biography of the exclamation mark. Um, I wouldn't have thought that it would be the exclamation mark, which would um, capture me for so long, for so many months, because originally I was working on brackets many, many, many years ago when I started uh, this whole book huge tree of interests and um, writing that is punctuation. So I'm quite pleased to have had the surprise of um, the exclamation mark accompanying me or me accompanying it rather for a whole year now because I started writing this book in September, October and now it's out. So I thought what better way to mark this uh, momentous day of my first book um, then and the return to the podcasts as well, then by recording a little session on the highlights of the book. So what I will do is to go through every chapter and just pick up one thing that I think is interesting and uh, and kind of curious, and i haven 't talked about yet. And I'll explore that a little bit. And I hope by doing so that you get a sense of what this book is about and what it feels like uh, reading it and what it felt like writing it as well. And I hope it makes you curious that perhaps uh, you feel like picking it up, perhaps giving it to a friend for Christmas. It's a nice little read. It's not um, super complicated, but I think there's a lot in there. It's packed with anecdotes um, with with funny ones, with rather serious ones as well. And there's lots of nice pictures too. So let's start. All right, so what is this book? As I've said, it's a whimsical biography of the exclamation mark, but it is also a manifesto in defense of it. And it's quite um, unapologetic, Um. It's a defense of the exclamation mark and it's a defense of feeling in text. It's certainly not a linear, straightforward book. I would I would rather say that it's like a walk in a maze or a forest with um, many paths that lead somewhere, that lead off the beaten track, that go sort of through the thicket, as it were. But I think those paths are delicious and sort of deliciously intriguing and they may or may not lead somewhere sometimes they don't lead anywhere but um is that is that even necessary still still feels nice to walk in them i suppose and um if you have gained something from walking on this path from exploring this uh sort of um path of the the main road that's great and um Sometimes you may not, but you certainly take uh with you quite interesting trivial <laughs> trivial facts, for example, in the case of my book, you will certainly remember that Donald Trump's record exclamation mark use on Twitter consisted of fifteen marks when he was very, very angry at the results of the Oscar ceremony of uh, I think two thousand fifteen fourteen or fifteen. So, just as a warning, this is a bit of a rambly book. And as I have also said, it's an, it's an unapologetic defense and it's unapologetically paradoxical. Uh, in one paragraph, I write that punctuation helps us navigate the sentence. In another, I contradict that. And, um, and I explain how punctuation actually confuses things and why that is a good thing. Now, I don't have a problem with that. I, I think life is ambiguous and life is uh, confusing and paradoxical. And one thing that can't be still is, as Macbeth says. Um, but my editors had a problem with that. And, and, and well, they should, because, of course, one needs to make a book cohere. So I sort of had to acknowledge the paradoxes in a kind of self-conscious way Um And I think that's also fine, because paradoxes are good, right? They're they're a good thing in capital uh, first letters. And why why are they good things? Because I think paradoxes make us think in several directions. Just again, just like a maze, right? You kind of go into several directions. And um, paradoxes keep us agile. Like, we have to do u-turns and um, fall back in on ourselves and turn our thoughts upside down shake out our heads (laughs) shake out the thoughts put the furniture back in like clean everything out put the furniture back in a different way um and then kind of periodically do that every once in a while so i suppose the book is an invitation to sort of do that um and yes, paradoxes make us nervous because, you know, we'd like to have things straightforward and clean cut. And yes, ambiguity is stressful. And yes, we can manage. And I think the exclamation mark helps us manage ambiguity, um, even as it sort of creates that because um, it's both friendly and potentially angry. It's both warm and potentially provocative. Um, so I think when we encounter it, the important thing is to just play with it and delight in it, you know, become frustrated in it and then become stressed and nervous but also learn to manage that and I I think on on this very small basis, this very minute, detailed kind of textual situation when we encounter an exclamation mark in the wild, as it were, we can take what we are feeling and we are sort of channeling into our life elsewhere and this might sound like a bit of a crazy thought but i i do believe that that's the case and it's one of the ways how punctuation impacts our life so basically i think uh, an exclamation mark is a therapist that you don't have to pay so the book, the book has six chapters, an introduction and a conclusion. And I'm going to just pick one thing that I find quite interesting and talk about that a little bit. Um, the, sh- the chapters are on the history of the exclamation marks. So we look at its birth and how long it took for it to be established, to become established. And uh, that goes straight up to today. Then we look at some grammar. It's, it's more fun than it sounds like. Um, and we explore different kinds of marks um, for tone because that is what the exclamation mark was doing for the first time to introduce some tone into this whole punctuation grammar thing. And then we look at literature. That's, of course, my favorite chapter. And uh, we explore poet poetry and um Pros and how the exclamation mark works there, then uh, something about the shape of the exclamation mark, about art and cognitive science, so what happens in our heads when we encounter an exclamation mark and also what happens in our bodies as well, which is sort of the same, I suppose, the, the brain-body um, um, conjunction, I suppose. And then uh, I look at politics, so that will be slogans and a bit of Trump as well, <laughs> one has to, and digital communication. That's uh, Trump again, because he was, uh, uh, probably still is, off Twitter, a very avid exclamation mark user, but also about all our um, habits around digital exclaiming. Okay, so I'm going to pick a, a little highlight, one highlight per chapter and i hope uh, that those those um little anecdotes make you curious so let's start the introduction the introduction is a bit of a, a whirlwind carnival hayride that's the right word into the world of exclamation marks and um which is actually all around us so it's it's uh, it was really so exciting to spend so much time with one mark and just find out um where where it is all around us it, and it's just really everywhere from uh, posters to um, our texting to mass chess scrabble uh, tv shows so that's what the introduction is about It's sort of buckets full of anecdotes on the exclamation mark and they're really just kind of hiding in plain sight i suppose uh, so it was actually really hard to pick my favorite here But I think I'm going to go with the Scrabble story. So in uh, 1978, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary in the U.S. published a list of Scrabble terms, so that you could check when you were playing (laughs) that like your crazy word doesn't actually exist. Where you know you're trying to use the X and the Y and the Z and whatever um, that you can't use uh, otherwise. So because there's actually you know professional scrapper players, as far as I know, or sort of semi-professionals, they came up with this list of terms that are, um, that you can use. And uh, the dictionary later faced criticism for including slurs, both racial racial and sexual, uh, but also um, for including rather more innocent words that are perhaps a little bit naughty. We'll come to that. So it produced revised lists. And um, after those words that some people considered um, offensive, the dictionary printed an exclamation mark to denote, okay, y- you have to be careful here. So now, of course, the question is who who finds which word uh, offensive? And uh, in the 80s and 90s, various groups of anti-defamation and, uh, and feminist groups um, and also some scrabble players around the world put pressure on... Um, Mattel, so that's the um, the producer of the game, to have more and more words flagged up as offensive with the exclamation mark, which I don't think it means that you can't use them, but that's just sort of an acknowledgement that this word um, is is not nice or is like unsavoury or something, and and some things make sense, for example, les for lesbian, like that's an offensive term, then other things maybe like not not that much sense like booby or farted is flagged up or pissed and also of course <laughs> my favorite word <laughs> I'm so pleased to be able to use it um fuck fuck is also being um flagged up as offensive so I said it and I printed it and I was <laughs> very glad to have all these naughty words in my book that's language right um language um shows the the diversity of experience and of, of how we use it. I did contact Mattel and several Scrabble groups um, in order to ask to see the list because I couldn't actually get hold of them because I wanted to see like where do they put the exclamation mark and how does it look like and how, how are people using it, do they actually like agree that those terms are offensive or is it sort of a um. A question of the moment of time which it is because what is offensive today hasn't been yesterday and probably won't be tomorrow right um, but I wasn't able to get a hold of um, lists themselves or of somebody from Matel. however in some Facebook Scrabble groups people started to actually fight and I had to delete my question because they were angry that you know some words were considered offensive like who decides that and for me really it was just about the exclamation mark and what does that mean but be, uh, the discussions became quite heated <laughs> which is nice you know like um it means that it means something to people and um and as long as uh we kind of um we pay attention to it right that that means that either we hate it or we love it we're not indifferent to it, um, then it's alive, right? Um, so I guess what I just got out of that is that the exclamation mark flags um, something up that someone at some point thought is a bit of a hot potato, so perhaps rather not use it, or just as an acknowledgement that something dangerous is going on, something provocative. And um, and hence, I guess that the seeing it in the Scrabble list means that just... Stay on your toes right keep keep on your toes and and perk up uh what on pronouncing as well uh I find myself saying exclamation mark exclamation mark exclamation mark all the time uh right now, right, and of course, I also found myself writing it all the time, so I started to just put the sign of the exclamation mark, um so that makes it hard now to uh to speak it right and um another little like i'm not, now i'm sneaking in another little uh point that i um mentioned in the introduction which is that lots of bands or singers use exclamation marks in their names for example pink she replaces the i with an exclamation mark and there's also a band that just has three exclamation marks as their name and uh, the question is how do you pronounce that and i think the band calls itself chick 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 or chick 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 and so in my head I started to say chick (laughs) instead of exclamation mark so if that happens now during this uh, podcast please bear with me (laughs) when I say chick that means that I'm talking about the exclamation mark it's also kind of uh, interesting to reflect on what what I think the exclamation mark would sound like I think chick is a pretty good guess (laughs) All right, so chapter one. Chapter one is a a journey across the history of the exclamation mark and also, of course, a bit of of the um, history of punctuation itself. I've recorded a whole podcast on punctuation and I've recorded a whole podcast on the exclamation mark. So you can check out um, the history of the mark there. So I don't want to repeat that and I actually choose something else. But I think um, what I can say here is just that the exclamation mark was invented by one man, one scholar in the mid-14th century in Italy, and he was called Alpoleio da Urbisaglia. And of course, I had to (laughs) dedicate the book to him um, because sort of a stroke of genius. Um, And I guess he felt that there wasn't enough pointers on how to pronounce a sentence, because he said lots of people mistake... Sentences and he calls them um, that, that, that um, express admiration and wonder. And lots of people mispronounce that as a question or a statement. So he wanted to make sure that uh, people would pronounce it properly. Um, and uh, I mean, that means that he thinks that, that there's, there needs to be more feeling in the text. And it's quite interesting to me why he picked admiration and wonder. And I think those are beautiful emotions or experiences that he thinks should be registered in a text. Now, um, it did take a couple of hundreds of years for people to wrap their head around the exclamation mark, like how is that supposed to be used. And it later became uh, used for any and all kinds of emotions or like a loud voice. Um and um yeah that chapter 1 traces the like, the long path of figuring the punctuation mark out um and it stops where digital media starts so it stops sort of in the 21st century because digital media has its own um its own chapter so um in the 19th century people experienced a bit of a punctuation bonanza. They would just use a lot of punctuation for all sorts of things. And um, it's also that the rules from the 19th century are not the rules that we have today. For example, they used a the semicolon for lists, which is sort of like a um, colon. And now we wouldn't do that anymore, right? A semicolon would be sort of ending a sentence but you still really want to continue, but that's another story. So just to say that from the 19th century, in the 19th century, people operated under the assumption that the more the better. If you are in doubt, just throw in like an extra comma, an extra semicolon. So they really just sort of peppered their sentences with <laughs> punctuation marks. And that inevitably led to a backlash in the early 20th century. And I think perhaps one can draw parallels with. I wouldn't call it maybe a backlash, but a reaction to this very rich, full art nouveau, late 19th century decadence uh, zeitgeist or aesthetics of, you know, again, the more the better, like frills and curls and and so on. And um, so there was a bit of a movement against too much, too much punctuation. Too much like um, curves, I suppose, and then you have this these straight lines of maybe Bauhaus architecture in the 20th century, right, and like um, the the silhouette of people, I think, especially women, was not curvy but was more straight anyway, maybe that's a bit um, a bit fanciful, but I do think that there's a sort of a movement towards less is more. And one grammar, uh, grammar and style book of the early 20th century it was very impactful for how English language in the UK developed. And it was The King's English by the Fowler Brothers. It was published in 1906 and it went through lots and lots of editions. And even until today, people still have it at home. You know, people still use it. And it's actually in a, a funny read because... The Fowler brothers really were children of their age. They were very witty, kind of Oscar Wildean uh wit that was um, a little bit patronizing, perhaps, but now we can sort of look back and laugh. And it's really that the, the personalities are written all over this um, text that's supposed to be, this book that's supposedly neutral and like a sober grammar guide. But they really, really didn't like punctuation and here's what they had to say about punctuation itself they say what reads wrongly if the stops are removed is radically bad stops are not to alter meaning but merely to show it up which is very (laughs) very english oxford educators like so judgy and such a strong emotion so What they say is don't use punctuation in order to make sense. It has to make sense without it, which is absolutely not true. I mean, it can be true, but it really doesn't have to. They also say, which I just find hilarious, anyone who puts himself anyone who finds himself putting down several commas close to one another should reflect that he is making himself disagreeable. (laughs) I can just see this coming from the granny, Granny Violet. Is is she called Violet in Downton Abbey, right? She, She would say such a thing. Now, the Fowlers thought that some exclamations are more exclamatory than others. For example, they say, You surprise me, how dare you? Don't tell such lies. Those are just statements. So you're not allowed to actually put exclamation marks. Um, they're just they're just statements, questions, or commands. And only because you are excited doesn't mean that your words deserve an exclamation mark, or it doesn't mean that it's called for. They call the exclamation mark decoration. So they mean that means that they just prettify a sentence, right? They're not essential. And of course, in my book, I say, well, they're very essential indeed. (laughs) But the exclamation mark kicks back. And as with so many grammarians and stylists before, the Fowlers multiply examples, paradoxes emerge, confusion abounds, and, you know, (laughs) language just exasperates them. And in the end, they they just give a blanket warning against exclamation marks because... They've contradicted themselves so much in in their you know, um, in their attempts to make sense of something that's just like a wild growth of you know language wanting to do its thing, and they say excessive use of the exclamation mark is one of the things that betray the uneducated. So I think haters are gonna hate full stop, right? But um, it's it's certainly a fun read. <laughs> Now, um, in chapter two, I speak a little bit about the grammatical implications of the exclamation mark because it is like a full stop, so it ends a sentence. That means it has grammatical value. It's just like a full stop with a bit of a top hat, (laughs) I suppose. Um, But it also has feeling value. And the most important thing is it tells us something about tone. Tone is a super elusive thing in text. Like um, when I analyze a poem or when I teach um, literature, I always encourage my students and I, I always try to think about tone. What is the tone here? And it's so hard to to get to that, right? It's something kind of felt intuitively. And it is hard because... A piece of writing, whatever writing it is, even if it's just a post, it is disembodied, right? There's no, um, there's no hand for a gesture. There's no face for facial expressions. There's no voice, right? Is the voice fast or slow or high or low? Is the voice cracking or stuttering? Um, there's no posture, right? We don't see the other person or, or like tilt of the head or eye roll or whatever it is, right? So it's so hard to actually read the tone of the meaning um, from just this artificial (laughs) squiggles on a piece of paper. And now imagine even that nowadays, most of the texts we encounter are digital, they're on a screen. So we don't actually have that little bit of humanity um, or like a reminder that the other person actually exists and is like a, a person like handwriting anymore or the piece of paper that the other person had in their hand that's maybe a little bit crumpled or like that's been folded or maybe something is smudged maybe they underlined something maybe they crossed it out maybe the there was some something spilled on the piece of paper right just to know that another person had this thing that they have written in their hand that that means something to us. And there there are actually studies that um, have shown that people read the same message that is written on a piece of paper differently than when it's written um, as a text message. So I find, that, I find that so fascinating. So now in this supremely disembodied space that we now have for text, where we encounter text, tone is sort of the... Um, the queen of, uh, of meaning-making or of analysis, I suppose. And uh, people have tried for hundreds and hundreds of years to catch that tone, right? To, to invent more and more signs that try to capture and tell the reader, this is what I actually mean. For example, irony. Irony is such a hard um, thing to find out. You know, we all know people who are not very good at um reading between the lines and grasping that this sentence or this this thing that I just said I don't really mean it. Right. That's kind of basically like a very basic definition of irony, that you mean actually something else from what you have said. And uh, my nephews and nieces, I um I have seen that sort of in their development when they were around two three years old. They kind of started to understand that mm, maybe the thing that people say can actually mean something else. And then when we were playing and I would, for example, say, Oh, uh, I have a friend and he's a policeman and he's going to come and like lock you up because you took the sweets or something. They would look at me and wouldn't be entirely sure. Does she really mean it? Or is this like fun? Are we playing? And and then they kind of have this doubt written all over their face and they hesitate a little bit. And then they're like, mm, you don't really mean that. But they're not entirely sure. <laughs> and and so I think by that, after that age, so it's sort of old older toddler and then young child, maybe five or something, six, they are actually able to, just even understand that some language doesn't have to mean what it says literally, right? So irony is so hard to grasp and also to write well, right? So in the past, there were so many examples of um, people trying to invent new signs or reuse old signs for irony. And I go through lots of those examples in chapter two. Also, this is, again, like a sneaky little extra anecdote, there's the shit point, le point de merde, by a French um, comedian, or like a humorous writer, that has a very specific shape, and you have to get the book in order to see what kind of shape the point de merde, the shit point, has. What I find interesting is that the exclamation mark seems to somehow spark a lot of creativity in those punctuation inventors because it seems to be the basic shape that they keep using and reusing. And I've talked to two designers that I've actually talked to on this podcast as well, and I I speak about their work in the book too, who again, I think, take the full stop at the bottom and then the vertical body on top as a baseline for their inventions. Some of those inventions are satirical and are not actually meant to be serious. And some are very serious indeed. And actually, the two uh, designers, Thierry Fetivo and Walter Bohac, that I talked to on this podcast as well, they do mean it seriously. They think that um, we need more punctuation to defuse writing and to help us pronounce and to help us perform words and you know who knows maybe in 300 years those signs will have trickled into um, our daily use of, of language of, of text but what i actually want to talk about is um, my favorite sign really i mean one of my favorite signs it's hard to say <laughs> which one is the favorite for for me because i've i, lo- I love all the signs but here it goes so in 1962, um, advertising agent Martin Spector proposed a new sign that he thought was capable of expressing his, 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 uh, the age that he was living in, the disbelief, the indignation, the fear, the emergency of the time. And he, sees, he says, we need a sign that expresses how we live right now or like the stress that we're under in the 60s and he says when there's a new crisis or calamity almost every day we need a sign to express that and bless Martin Spector 60 years onwards <laughs> still exactly the same in 2022 we need a new sign like this too. Spector actually suggests not a new sign to express this like urgency and the stress and fear and catastrophe um but what he does do is to just put a question mark and an exclamation mark on top of one another so he just superimposes them and this is also very common like people people would just re um repurpose something that they've already used and i mean we do that all the time in all sorts of other things right we uh, upcycle our clothes into bags or whatever right um so he kind of takes rhetorical questions that we sometimes that we and in the 60s too we put a question mark and an exclamation mark to signify a rhetorical question or a question mark and and an exclamation mark there's no rule which comes first and if you're like me you've also sometimes wondered about whether the question mark should go first here or the exclamation mark and depending on the nuance of my rhetorical question, if it 's more like a question, I will put the question mark first, and it does seem to matter, which again, I think is super fascinating that something so tiny and minute you know it does occupy our thought. How is the other person going to read that um, rhetorical question, depending on which I put first so uh, spectre chose to just superimpose the question and the exclamation mark. And he ran a survey in a typographical magazine and asked people for the name. He had several name suggestions and um, they settled for the interobang. And I've heard some uh, typography and punctuation nerds ask me. (laughs) And we're very excited. And we're like, are you talking about the Bang? If you're not, you know, huge oversight, I'm not going to get the book. Rest assured, the interobang gets lots and lots of pages and even like a nice... Um, a nice picture from an Italian film, also from the 60s, that was called Bang. So um, the Interrobang didn't find a lot of favor <laughs> among a broad number of people. But again, you know, people are still around who know it and who love it. And um, I can understand that because, as I said before, it's actually quite hard to pitch new punctuation and even the punctuation that we use today the repertoire that we have the most basic ones the full stop the comma the question mark they took hundreds and hundreds sometimes thousands of years to be established so really um no uh no judgment that the entire bang hasn't yet been um been able to pervade every sphere of writing as it were but um, it must have been interesting enough for people at the time because in 1968 the Remington Rand typewriter produced an extra um, no produced its its own Interobank key so there are typewriters with the Interobank. and in the 70s the Cor- Smith Corona typewriter Produced an extra key, an extra enterobank key that you can um attach to your typewriter, so <laughs> that that must have meant something right because some typewriters until the seventies didn't even had an exclamation mark key, so you had to type a full stop and then backspace and put an apostrophe on top. So uh it seems that typewriter producers were punctuation fans, or you know, there were some fans out there. And today the Interabang survives in some word typefaces, for example, Calibri. So uh I, I would encourage you to just go and have a look whether you can find it on the computer. And um I I love the Interabang because it's sort of a half successful story but not really and it's again like one person Martin Spector who feels like there's a need and he feels he needs to address that and then he gathers a following or he starts to have people be on board and then we have the technolo- technological um potential through typewriters and now through the computer to actually make the uh the mark, the punctuation mark, which is one of the most important things is to be able to do it with the technology of writing that we have. Uh, otherwise punctuation marks just, just die on the uh graveyard of unused punctuations. So I think that the story of the entire bang is the story of punctuation in, in a nutshell. And I also just really like it. I think it's creative. I like I think it looks fun. And I think it's, a, it's an expression of language being relevant and punctuation being relevant and how we play with it as well. So, chapter three, all about literature. And you will be happy to find that stylists and writers themselves really wildly disagree on whether to use exclamation marks and, if so, how many for example, Scott Fitzgerald, he who wrote the great Gatsby and Tenders the Night, thought that using exclamation marks was like laughing at your own joke. So it's just too much. It's just too much like, oh, here I am. <laughs> and too, I guess attention-seeking and self-consciously, oh, this is a text. But then you have Salman Rushdie winning the Pulitzer Prize in 1981 for Midnight's Children. And it has... 2,313 exclamation marks. That's an average of six per page. So that really is quite a lot, especially also when you see it, you know, it's very striking. He actually won the Booker of Bookers with this book, and not only once, but twice. <laughs> so that's all of the Booker prizes competing against one another. And he, he, he so he won that twice. So he, he sort of won three prizes, uh, sorry, Pulitzer Prizes, not Booker Prizes, Pulitzer. Prizes. So I guess that um that means to that goes to show that the exclamation mark can be hugely impactful. So you know have you have Salman Rushdie's permission to use it as much as you want. There are lots of examples of punctuation um being a moot point between editors and writers in my book and I think I'll also record a podcast on that quite soon because I really love uh, thinking about who put this exclamation mark here in the text and when and why, um, what do we think about it if it's there, what do we think about if it's not there, was it the author, was it the editor, was it the typesetter for example in the renaissance or until the 18th century, the proofreader, who, who put things there, right, does it matter, it does matter and it also doesn't matter, I think um in looking at punctuation, we always have to keep in mind that it is contingent. So it's contingent on the technology of book production or or publishing. Um how how do people do that at the time? It's contingent on conventions and the education of the writer on what the book is supposed to do, on the education level of the readers, on lots of other things. But I think that punctuation, looking at the punctuation can help us trace histories of text, how did it come to be from, you know, just being an idea to an actual book that we hold in our hands. And I think it also shows how that a book is a social thing, right? It's a social object, not only because we pick it up and we pass it around and we give it as gifts and so on, but also because there's so many people involved in making a book. For example, in my book, who was involved? Well, I wrote it... The editor at Profile, the publishing house with it just being published, who wrote to me. Other editors who also had a look at it, a proofreader, first proofreader, second proofreader, um, people who looked at the, who found the images and who got permission for the images, my agent, um, friends who read it and who who read it before submitting and and so on, um, and then of course um the designer and then people who it's being published and they put it into a box and it's being shipped to a bookshop. So it's just like such a huge number of people who are involved and you don't see their traces anymore, right? But it's not me. It's like it's me and all the others who are so important in in making it, right? And I think punctuation is a tool of understanding that. I do some close reading of poems and prose passages in the chapter and I was very pleased that all of them stayed in because I was worried that the publisher would be like, nah, you know, people are not reading your thoughts on Jane Austen or something. So I'm very, I'm very glad that I got to keep all my nerdy, juicy literature <laughs> analysis. And, um, so because I plan, as I said, a podcast on editing punctuation, I think I choose something else. Now I choose, um, a poem by a poet that I love he's called Gerard Manley Hopkins and I'm going to think about the reaction of a scholar when he read Hopkins's poetry for his exclamation because I think I really identify with the reaction of the scholar when he was diving deeply into the exclamation mark use of Hopkins Um, perhaps a little bit about Hopkins first, he lived in the late 19th century, I think, I think he died in the 1920s or so. Mm. Uh, I'm an early modernist, I'm I'm a Renaissance person. (laughs) Please forgive me if I, if I, I'm not quite sure on when he lived, but he definitely was a late Victorian and he was an Oxford man. He was at Balliol. He was an incredible scholar. He was so well respected. And he had a quite interesting personal s- history that we know some parts of, but perhaps not everything. He became Catholic and he became a Jesuit priest at the time that was really difficult in the UK because for um, how many years, 200, 300 years, there was actually discrimination against Catholics in the UK. And um, it's not very pretty, you know. Anglicanism doesn't really want to hear that. That um, it wasn't just Catholics in the past who burned Protestants, but for a long, long, long time after, like really violent um, conflict between Protestants and Catholics, Catholics had a difficult life, and they were, for example, excluded from higher offices at um, government offices or or public service offices. So anyway, uh, here's Hopkins who became an actual Jesuit priest and he was probably also gay. Some people contest that, but there's definitely evidence in his personal writing on homosocial tendencies, if one wants to call it that. I think it's pretty clear that he was gay, but um, some people uh, disagree with that or aren't entirely sure and yes a catholic priest can be gay because i've i've heard that people were like oh he's a priest you can't be gay well <laughs> i don't even know where to start but anyway i think um it, it's that um it's it's that and lots of other things his his orientation and other things that perhaps made hopkins feel a little bit apart from other people and remember that this was um, a United Kingdom that had Oscar Wilde imprisoned for um his uh, sexual orientation and do hard labour for two years, which at that time came close to a death sentence because it was hard labour for somebody who was totally not used to it. And in any case, Hopkins calls his own poetry a little bit odd, and we're going to see why. Um, His poetry is very interested in nature he loved nature there's a real um a real love there's nothing else to no, no other word that really expresses this deep deep affection and appreciation and being touched by nature because of course also hopkins saw nature as an expression of god's creation right and so his poetry often celebrates that in such a dense surprising choice of words that he strings together and um, I in the book I look at the wind hover that's a kestrel a kind of bird by Hopkins and the bird is just hovering you know, surfing the air and it starts I'm sure you know the poem is quite famous I caught this morning morning's minion kingdom of daylight dolphin dappled dawn drawn falcon in his writing and it continues like that and what I absolutely must have messed up the rhythm because um, Hopkins came up with something called sprung rhythm and he made his own signs and he put his own signs on the words and between the words and they were supposed to be pronounced in a certain way uh, that I don't know how, um, but uh, even without that, the you can just read the the words and the words are so surprising and um and touching and just uh it's, it's a nice experience to read daylight dolphin devil dawn drawn falcon <laughs> in his writing right what does it mean i'm not so sure but i like it and now um there's lots of o's and Rs in hopkins's poetry some some with exclamation marks for example in the windhover he says at some point, oh my chevalier, and that's probably Christ. Exclamation mark! Oh my chevalier, my my knight, right? Exclamation mark! So there's a scholar called Peter Milbert. Um, I think it's from the seventies. This article, who has looked at the differences between O's and R's in Hopkins's poetry. And uh, if there are any differences, actually, as well. And he actually comes to some conclusions. So he says that R, ah, exclamation mark, like, ah, uh, sounds sharp and intense. Whereas oh sounds clearly more relaxed, with less pursing of the lips and more letting out of breath. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure whether that's true, but perhaps. Um, so... Uh, just like just like the Fowler brothers before and like a lot of other people who um including me i suppose who explore the exclamation mark the scholar gets so worked up in how the exclamation mark functions or seems to function in Hopkins's poetry that halfway through his academic analysis he kind of loses it and he interrupts this is altogether extraordinary, exclamation mark. And this is in an actual <laughs> serious academic article that this critic gets so involved in the thing that he is analyzing in the exclamation marks and the O's and the Ah's and the, the sighing and the breathing and the moaning <laughs> that he, he just interrupts and ex- exclaims himself, right? This is altogether extraordinary. So he's sort of totally swept Away by the poetry and the and the exclaiming, and I love that because it, it, it's the exclamation mark is really subversive it just it just draws us in and it it just sweeps us off our feet, and even the most serious academic who published the paper in a in a serious respected journal um Exclaims in that way, and and is being uh, being taken taken away like that. All right. So, chapter four is about the shape of the exclamation mark, and about some art, some comic art as well, and some um, some modern art where we find the um, the exclamation mark. It's also about. Neuroscience, so it's about um, what happens in our brain when we see an exclamation mark. I don't want to give it away, it's very interesting. And it's also about muscle movement in the larynx when we read an exclamation mark. So not even when we pronounce it, but what what happens in our mouths, like in the apparatus of our voice, when we see, we just see it and we like just read the words, as it were this is also something i'm not i don't want to give it give away i really um i was really struck by those two uh, cognitive science or um biological experiments so however i have something that i i love and uh, that is an exclamation mark statue it's about as tall as you and i so maybe like six feet or so perhaps a bit less and it's yellow it's bristly rubberized horsehair. that's sort of um, sprayed yellow like a really garish uh neon (laughs) neon yellow and it's from 2008 by richard archwager or archwager he's an american or he was an american artist from uh, who's been um, working since the 60s so that's conceptual art he used to be a designer furniture designer and i think a furniture dealer so he has a sense or he's interested in space and objects of art and how they interact in space and uh, this is not the only excla- um, punctuation mark that um, he exhibited in his uh, shows he also had question marks and other kinds of exclamation marks. But I really love this yellow one because it's for me it's just like a 1980s garish uh, pop song or something. And he also writes a little bit about the exclamation mark whom he calls the Prince of Punctuation because I think he calls it that because it communicates with its surroundings. He says... The exclamation mark can operate with its, with respect to itself or anybody or anything around. So it's like um, contained in itself, but it also does something to the things around it. He says the exclamation mark is spiraling free, but gravity aware, hopping on one foot spiraling free but gravity aware hopping on one foot and I think that means that it has this bottom this full stop which grounds it but it's also so it's aware of gravity (laughs) it's not just like floating around but it has an upwards lengthening body and it it kind of makes it dance and turn around itself And, and in that way it frees itself of the physics of gravity so it's both and, it's that paradox that I think I'm trying to get at in the book. I also think this exclamation, this yellow exclamation mark is just a middle finger to the establishment. <laughs> whatever kind of establishment that you want to show the middle finger to. So speaking of establishment, in chapter 5 I look at politics and punctuation, especially the exclamation mark. And at propaganda too, for example, propaganda posters from the Second World War. The exclamation mark looms large in politics, that's for sure. So there are political logos and slogans from Obama to Jeb Bush. That's the neglected youngest son of George Bush Sr. And of course, there's Trump and his MAGA campaign that features very large. But there are also French presidential elections in 2022. So this year where a lot of candidates used the exclamation mark, um, not very su- successfully so, but they did and it was noticed by the media. There is also some German politics because um, the exclamation mark uh, caused a lot of uh, political or social unrest or contributed rather in 2015 when it was used for something that Angela Merkel had said and of course this is what I want to talk about although um I don't explore it very much in the book um uh, ready for wish so the the exclamation mark is is hot off the press as it were for the September-October UK prime ministerial race and in September, um, Rishi Sunak stood as party, Tory party leader with the slogan, ready for Rish. So the I becomes subsumed in an exclamation mark or one could also say that the I the of Rishi gets turned upside down into the exclamation mark, so the, the dot of the I is now at the bottom of the line. And uh, in September, this slogan really didn't work out at all. I think it was because it just doesn't look very nice. There isn't any new uh, design, for example. And when you are (laughs) standing as the leader of, you know, one of the most powerful countries in the world, you really have to come up with some interesting design, you, ha- you you go to designers, to an agency, they develop something. Um, Obama did that, for example, and, and usually US presidents do that. Trump probably didn't. <laughs> but usually, you know, or when you have a business and you launch a business, you go to designers, you tell them what your business is about, you tell them what you as a candidate are about, and they develop a design for you. Uh, that can be a logo or that can be, um, and that is also a typeface. So when I worked on my website over the summer, for example, a friend of mine, who is a website developer, um, created a logo for me. And uh, that's a little fox, (laughs) because I love foxes. And they start with an F as well, like my first name, Florence. And um, this fox symbol or like logo, um curls into a um a, a fountain pen because I'm a writer, so uh that expresses something about me right i I write and uh, I like this particular animal it has something to do with me, and then the f of the first name so um that is something design tells us something about somebody's beliefs somebody's ideas and ethics and ready for Rich just didn't do that. It was too nondescript, too slick. Perhaps like Rishi Sunak himself, you know, was like a um, one of the most uh, one of the richest people of the UK. His wife, um, having you know tax (laughs) issues, and um, him having been a banker, you know, Oxford educated like always, so that just didn't um, reach people. Not even the. Uh, conservative party members. And so even the exclamation mark just didn't do it. It it was supposed to, it was trying a little bit too hard to generate motivation or enthusiasm where the candidate wasn't really able to. And however, after six weeks and after catastrophic trustonomics that just left such a wasteland um, for the next prime minister, The UK was ready for Rish, right? So so the exclamation mark went from lame enthusiasm, producer that didn't work, to sort of an outcry by the country. Okay, we're ready for you, please come and just patch up whatever you can try to patch up. And this, I find this uh, shift in energy or what the exclamation mark is doing or who is potentially exclaiming here really fascinating and uh i would if I were a politics advisor i would I would always advise against exclamation marks in uh, in slogans and uh, slogans and logos. It can never really work well. you know now it has worked out the second time around this uh, similar dynamic of uh generating or, or or the exclamation mark supposed to generate. Uh, motivation and enthusiasm and eagerness for a candidate that can't is also something I discussed in the book in relation to Jeb Bush. All right, so chapter six, that's the last chapter, that is on digital punctuation. And uh, we pick up where we left off. So with Trump and his Twitter use. So in 11 years of, of Twitter, Trump used a whopping... 33,000 exclamation marks. And this just insane use increased even during the presidential campaign 2015-16. And then as president of the US between 2016 and 22. So I look at the exclamation mark use of his rivals, that's Hillary and Bernie. And um, which words are Trump's favorite words with uh, exclamation marks. And um, how did the exclamation mark actually help bring about Trump's banishment from Twitter? But what I want to highlight now, actually, is that um, the exclamation mark, as I said at the beginning, when I spoke about disembodiment and tone, does something super important online. So if we can... um, shut out <laughs> the Trumpian news that's sort of phallic and, and shrieky and hysterical, although I don't want to use those words, but that's just uh, too, way too shouty. The exclamation mark actually produces warmth and friendliness online. There was a study in 2006, which I know is a long time ago, and I, I didn't find another study that was picking that up. And this study is very often cited, but here we go. That's the only thing that we have. It's a study from two thousand six by sociologist Carol Vasileska, of uh, California University, I believe, who looked at library platform communication. So professional platform. So it was like a platform for librarians to discuss, um, uh, how to how they work or like their advice or um, l- library studies, and the women on this platform, did indeed use more exclamation marks, but they used that in order to convey friendliness. So, for example, when there's a new person joining the platform, the discussion platform, they will write, uh, welcome, and I think it's undeniable that if you have a welcome, I don't know, welcome Peter, full stop, that that seems definitely less friendly than, welcome Peter, exclamation mark. So women use on the platform use um the exclamation mark as a social mm, sign as a kind of a digital hug or a digital smile as linguist Gretchen McCulloch says and uh, just as an aside the only people who used three exclamation marks were men and those three exclamation marks were supposed to be incendiary and they like, came at the end of swear words so only angry men online use three exclamation mark. And then, you know, we have Trump's example, and it seems to be true. So in the last chapter, I have lots of other um, thoughts on email, writing and emojis and online language. So the epilogue looks, tries to look at the future of uh, the exclamation mark. So uh, I discuss the two designers that um, I've also spoken to on the pod- podcast. That's Thierry Fetivo and Walter Bohaj, And I think a little bit about why are they still inventing new signs and what is the role of the exclamation mark in these um, signs. And what I think I want to um, pick out from this little look into the future is... Another word for punctuation is stigmatology, at least Peter Shendi, I think that's his name, is a French philosopher, and he proposes stigmatology from the Greek stigma for punctuation. But stigma also means like a bruise, you know, the blue spot that we keep from a bruise. It's a two or a mark. And that means that punctuation does something to us, right? It, it Kind of punches us, it punches the 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 paper when in the past when um, uh, when letters were printed, they would be pressed into the paper, and I mean, we will have to open open a book and have a look whether we can tell that um, the color is pressed into the letter, perhaps today it 's less so, but in the past, in the Renaissance until the eighteenth century when printing changed, printing technology changed, those were printing presses. You would you would literally push the letters and the colour into the paper. And that is a bit like punching the paper, right? And so I think punctuation punches us in, uh, in metaphorical terms, into the eyes, into the brain, into the throat, the 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 voice apparatus, into the gut and it is it is something highly um artificial because writing is you know that's uh, a random uh a random line and uh, a line and a curve and whatever it makes an a and that's the a sound and then that becomes like becomes a a word when stuck together that is highly artificial and at the same time it's so physical and we feel it so much in our bellies and in our guts. So, as a conclusion to the podcast on some highlights from my book, I want to read you the jacket cover of my book again. And that's this time it's from the back. That's the blurb. It's been called the screamer, the slammer, the bang, the gasper and the shriek. Nothing says excitement... Like an exclamation mark now at last, here's the untold story of punctuation's perennially provocative point. So I hope that I was able to give you a little insight into an admirable point the a brief history of the exclamation mark, and that I was able to whet your appetite a little bit, so if you like, have a look at the um go get the book <laughs> you can get it from Amazon and um, from bookshops in the uk please of course buy from bookshops and not uh, amazon if you can and support uh, small and local bookshops it's being published in the us next year i believe and it's also being translated to german also next year thanks for listening and see you soon